0: Thanks for being with us on this Sunday morning. Okay, listen quickly. This is an email I just got from a listener and thank you so much for sending this in because it ties in perfectly with my next guest and what we are going to talk about. Doug writes to me, yesterday I opted out of my speculation tax. I decided to use a phone rather than a laptop. I was on hold for about 45 minutes listening to the your call is important to us BS. I stayed on hold while I used a computer to opt out just as I finished opting out for myself and my wife, a voice came on the phone. I told the person on the phone how unhappy I was with the wait time. He said he would then transfer me to someone that could help me. You guessed it. He put me on hold again. So I hung up. Thank you, NDP, for wasting an hour of my Sunday. Well, thanks again, Doug, for taking the time to write in and uh, share that experience because my next guest is going to be talking about time and what our time is worth. And I want to talk about this because it's part of this equation that we often don't take a look at. Uh, Joseph Filipowicz is a senior policy analyst at the Fraser Institute and joins us on the line now. Joseph, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Hi, Jill. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, You wrote a blog post uh, in the title of that, uh, BC Homeowners Aren't Exactly Exempt from the Latest Speculation Tax, and it talks about time. And again, I'm so glad you did that because we often don't talk about that part of the equation. Uh, Walk us through your point and what the points you were making in this.
1: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, so, so uh, as you mentioned, people have been uh, receiving letters and, and either going online or, or, uh, or trying to call in if, if they can even reach provincial employees to actually get this exemption. And, and the Horgan government has famously said now that 99% of, of British Columbians will be exempt from the, uh, the, the so-called speculation and vacancy tax but that's not exactly true you see the time that folks take to submit the declaration as as you alluded to earlier is worth something isn't it um e- even if it's 10 to 20 minutes like they say which we know is uh, you know as as your uh, your letter uh, e- exemplifies it's not exactly true that it's 10 to 20 minutes for a lot of folks but even if we take that assumption right um it still it still leads to you know m- millions of people's minutes and 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 hundreds of thousands of their hours that are spent uh, complying with with this tax so I did a quick calculation uh, in the blog post you mentioned that estimates the absolute minimum that this would cost folks in terms of their time so if we assume that their time is worth um, in this case the lowest possible amount, which is the minimum wage, which of course is a gross underestimate right most people don't earn the minimum wage um, Then it turns out that we end up with about $1.8 to $3.6 million worth of BC homeowners' time spent applying for exemptions that they're almost all guaranteed to receive, right? They're almost all going to be exempt from this tax, and yet $1.8 to $3.6 million at very minimum is being spent uh, just to comply with this tax.
0: And what did you think about that number when you worked it out, and, like you said, working out it at the very lowest the minimum wage, which likely we're not talking about since we're talking about property owners and people who have owned properties for quite some time. Uh, what did you think about that number?
1: Well you know it, it was impressive uh, in the sense that you know this this is uh this is not a tax that you know is people are not exempt from this tax is basically the point uh, because at the end of the day. This is time that folks could be spent doing literally anything else, right? Um, th- th- this is you know them working, them being at home with friends and family, uh, doing groceries, whatever it is that they want to do. This is their time that's being that's being layered on top of uh, of all the other time they have to spend doing uh, you know spending uh, for compliance with all levels of government when it comes to uh, municipal property tax, when it comes to. Um, income tax for the provincial and federal governments, um, you know, th- this this gets layered on and, and it's not like 10 to 20 minutes, even if it's, you know, e- even if that's an underestimate, 10 to 20 minutes is, is, is just being added to everything else. So it raises an important question, right? Why not target the 1% who are eligible for the tax rather than spend, you know, money, time and, and staffing resources in Victoria, right? There are people who have to process this. To process the ninety nine percent who aren't eligible, why not just target those who are supposedly eligible?
0: And, and and exactly, and I think others have raised that point as well, saying there must be an easier way or a better way to do this.
1: Well, especially if it's costing two to you know almost two to four million dollars in in people's time, right? Um, I'm sure you could spend that money on two three decent economists in Victoria to uh, put their heads together and figure out how how, how better. To uh, to approximate this, I mean, this is this is the kind of stuff that, that that governments are known to do. So I I I'm surprised that they took this approach rather than a more targeted approach. Um, because once again, this is being added on to all the time that folks are already spending um, on, on complying with taxes at all levels of government.
0: It also seems like an overly onerous one. In that email that I read, uh, points to that as well. And like and like you said too, if it is truly ten to twenty minutes, even that seems like a big chunk of time. And, and if people live in Vancouver, you're already opting out of the empty homes tax, uh, which which isn't as onerous, but everybody does have to do it. So there is a cost. There is time there. Um, everybody, if you're if you're applying for the Homeowners grant that you'll do it, which I think people aren't as upset about because in that scenario you're doing it to get a grant, you're doing it to get money back. But it still does, like you said, it still does take time. And all if you add all of them up, it's it's a pretty good amount of time that people are spending opting out or or legitimizing themselves to government.
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, the point of the blog post was, was uh, you know, in, in, in good fun, just to remind British Columbia that they're and especially their representatives in Victoria, that their time is not worth nothing. And it shouldn't be treated as though it's worth nothing. Right. Because it's uh, at the end of the day, it's still a tax. It's just they're not they're not paying for it with their money. They're paying for it with their time, which ultimately is worth money as well.
0: And you don't go into this in the blog post, but I know you have looked at this in the past as well. And you've you've done calculations when it comes to housing. Do you think this tax will this tax do anything as far as housing supply as far as making housing more affordable in the province?
1: Well, it's it, it's unclear, Jill. I, I look forward to seeing um, you know how how many folks this ultimately targets, but I have a feeling it's going to be a very 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 small number. Um, and even by admitting that ninety nine percent of of British Columbians will be exempt, I have a feeling that. Uh, we're not going to be seeing astronomical numbers of of, uh, of vacant homes. I mean, we'll just have to wait and see. But I I uh, I, I am more interested in seeing how many uh, you know vacation homes this hits because I I've also been receiving emails from from folks you know hardworking folks who are retiring soon uh, who got a place in the Kelowna's, for example and who are going to be hit with this and, and aren't ready for it because they don't have steady income as retirees. So so it, it's. I really want to see, you know, I, I want to see who this ultimately affects because this 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 could have, you know, the opposite effect of what government actually wants to achieve. Um, and, and and as you mentioned, uh, supply is is probably the more important lever that the provincial government should be should be focusing on. Um, we we uh, we wrote a blog post, actually it was a, an op-ed last year on um, comparing uh, Florida with BC. In Florida, there's over a million. Um, uh, non-Floridians who own homes, you know, especially Canadians and and, and, uh, and people from the north of the U.S. who own homes in uh, Florida, and yet prices haven't skyrocketed, right? The, the average home there is still around $300,000. So it raises important questions about what the differences are, and in particular, uh, why Florida is able to build more homes to accommodate those people so that there isn't this kind of tension, right? Um, you have a home, I don't have a home kind of thing. There's, you know, there's enough to go around for everyone because more gets
0: built. And how do they do that? I would imagine it's easier to build a house there or to build a condo or a housing unit.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, we we didn't look into uh, the level of regulation in in, uh, Floridian municipalities, which uh, might have a lot to do with it. All we looked at were outcomes, which is that, you know, um, even if you adjust for the differences in population sizes between the two, they build a lot more. In fact, they build a they build um, uh, about 40% more than Ontario and about 20% more housing in a, any given year than, uh, than in BC. So it, it's pretty impressive uh, how much more construction there is, which is good for the local economy as well, right? you got folks in the building industry um, and, and, and the property tax dollars, right? Ultimately, if you own a property and you're paying property taxes, that money goes to, uh, to, to uh, service um, you know, local priorities in the community.
0: Exactly. Um, Have you had much reaction to this? Because again, we don't often think of our time and we don't, even though our time is valuable and it is worth something, I think it's often the last thing we put a value on. Uh, Have you had much response to uh, the numbers that you worked out and put in the post?
1: Uh, I haven't, I haven't noticed yet, um, but I, I, you know, just from people I've, I've talked to uh, about it, it seems pretty, pretty common sense, right? I mean, uh, my time's not worthless. I'm pretty sure your time's not worthless, and just to kind of put a number on that is, is just an important way of reminding that it's worth something, right? And that it, it shouldn't be treated as though it's worth it's worth nothing. Um, I think it's something that, that's not always appreciated. Of, of course, <laughs> economists talk about this all the time. They have a, a way less interesting name for it. It's, it's the marginal value of someone's time. Um, but it's important just to, just to bear that in mind, because once again, um, if your time is worth something, then you're not exempt from this tax.
0: All right. We will leave it there. Joseph, thank you so much. And thanks for coming on the show to talk about this. Appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Jill. It was great to, great to talk about this.
0: Well, the headline reads, did the drug-sniffing dog sit or not? And this is a story that has to do with an arrest that was made in Chilliwack in April of 2017. A man was pulled over. He was driving on the highway in Chilliwack. This is according to court documents. During the traffic stop, the officer said that he observed several cell phones, said there was a strong scent of cologne, and that the driver's arms were shaking. And that is part of the basis as to why the officer then detained the man in the vehicle for a drug investigation. The officer then brought in a drug sniffing dog, the dog's name, PSD Dudes, to the car. And the officer said that PSD Dudes indicated there was a smell of narcotics in the vehicle. However, the defense testified or used the testimony of an expert dog handler and argued that the dog wasn't actually in odor, meaning smelling the narcotics, because she didn't display other signs, such as wagging her tail. And here's the part that I think a lot of people are questioning. They also argued that since there was a curb in her way... When she tried to sit, which is a sign of drugs being found, when there was that curb in her way when she tried to sit, it wasn't clear if she was indicating that she had found drugs or not. So even though 27,500 fentanyl pills were found in a compartment, compartment over the wheel well of that car, there was an acquittal in this case. Let's bring in a local lawyer with Acumen Law, Kyla Lee. Kyla Lee, thanks for being with us once again. Thanks for having me. Uh, What are your thoughts on this case after, uh, those are just some of the details, uh, but the fact that there was an acquittal because the dog half sat or didn't fully sit?
2: Well, I know a lot of people are sort of shocked at that outcome, but uh, having read the judgment, I think that the judge reached the right conclusion. And that was largely due to the testimony of the officer who indicated that without a positive indication from the dog that there was something to investigate further, he had no grounds to detain uh, the vehicle and
0: search it and no grounds to arrest uh, the accused in that case and even though so are we focusing too much do you think on the the dog because it seems like the dog who was a drug sniffing dog did indicate that there were narcotics in the vehicle I think we
2: are focusing too much on the dog and not as much on the actual testimony of the officer as it came out at trial. At one point in uh, his testimony, the officer indicated that the dog only sat about a quarter of the way down. um, So didn't even make a half sit, as some of the, um, the reporting has indicated. And without a full sit, it's not considered to be a positive indication.
0: Uh, What about if the driver in this case, as the officer said as well, the driver was shaking? And is that enough for an officer to say the driver was exhibiting nervous behavior? Is that enough to do more of a search?
2: No, absolutely not. Uh, nervousness is certainly something that may raise an officer's suspicions, especially coupled with the presence of several, several cell phones and, and things used to mask odors in the vehicle. But nervousness alone is, is not something that can justify a search of a vehicle. And the reason for that is that people can be nervous for all sorts of reasons. People are nervous in all sorts of traffic stops. And officers will testify all the time that people are nervous even when they've done nothing wrong.
0: Uh, In this case, too, I think because of what we're dealing with with opioids in this province and with the number of overdoses that we deal with daily, uh, when people hear about a case like this where they did find 27,500 fentanyl pills in this vehicle, there's this sense of frustration that because of the process, because of those few moments when this person was pulled over, uh, that it led to an acquittal. Is there something, do you think, after reading the judgment, that the officer could have done differently uh,
2: absolutely the officer could have uh, repeated the search with the dog if he wasn't sure about the indication and um, taken more steps to get a positive uh, a positive indication from the dog. Uh, there's other investigative tools uh, that they could have used. He could have let the individual go and conducted surveillance on him as a result of his suspicions to see where he went and whether he engaged in any other behavior that's consistent with drug trafficking. So it didn't have to end here. And these investigations don't have to end if there is an ambiguous indication from a sniffer dog. Um, I think the public is is right to be concerned because of the significance of fentanyl overdoses. But everybody should bear in mind, too, that none of these drugs that were seized are going back on the streets. They're being destroyed. They don't get returned to, to somebody. And that Obviously, the police are now aware that this person is probably involved in some high-level drug trafficking and is going to be under significant scrutiny from the police going forward.
0: Right. And I get that. But I guess people, too, will look at this going, well, uh, they couldn't even do the search right. So you have to take this leap of faith that, yes, they are surveilling this person or that this person isn't going to go back and start peddling or start doing whatever it was he was doing with almost 30,000 pills in the future.
2: Yes, and there is a leap of faith required, but we have a charter of rights in this country and and we have a specific process that's set out in our courts to protect not just the rights of this individual, but all of our rights. Um, and when the police violate the rights, and the judge found that the violation here was particularly egregious because of the impact that it had on him. Um, his vehicle was was towed, it was taken apart, the search was lengthy, um, he was separated from his vehicle. All of those things play into how uh, the judge ultimately determines that the evidence is not admissible. And one thing that judges are required to consider is the impact on the administration of justice and, and the public's the perception of the administration of justice but he found that the conduct here outweighed that impact.
0: And I think it is because we're talking about fentanyl pills. And and I, I mean, people get it. There is the Charter of Rights. There are You have a right to, as being a citizen going about your daily business. Uh, but when we talk about the inconvenience of somebody losing his vehicle, uh, anybody that's lost somebody to a fentanyl overdose, I'm sure is probably ripping his or her hair out right now saying, but what about the impact 30,000 fentanyl pills could possibly have on a community?
2: And I, I completely understand and, and agree with those sentiments, um, but at the same time, you know, from a, a criminal law perspective, um, this judgment uh, applied the law uh, in the proper way. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes when we see these judgments, they don't achieve the results that we as a society wish we could see, but they do achieve them in a way that we as society as society should tolerate because they're done properly.
0: Uh, Would it be different, do you think? And I guess, too, uh, focusing on the dog, it almost seems like had there not been a curb where the dog sat down, that could have led to a completely different outcome.
2: It could have. Um, And unfortunately, that's one thing that we will never know. Um, And it is instructive to the police when they're conducting these searches in the future to take into account the locations where the vehicle is parked and where the dog is doing the search and maybe in the future to ask somebody to move their vehicle a few feet forward or a few feet away from a curb to ensure that the dog has a good location to make an indication. I think it's also important to bear in mind, though, that the side of the vehicle where the curb was on was not the same part of the vehicle where the fentanyl was ultimately located.
0: Hmm, which is uh, I suppose interesting, and I'm not an expert on that, how far away something needs to be for a dog to smell it or sniff it, but uh, that's an interesting point as well.
2: Yes, um, generally the dogs are trained to give the indication at the location where th- the dog believes on the, on the basis of their scent, the product is most close to. So you wouldn't expect it to be on the opposite side of the vehicle.
0: All right. Uh, Kyla, just before I let you go, uh, last time you were on, we were talking about uh, impaired driving laws and changes and such. Any update on that file as far as what you're seeing uh, happening on the roads or happening in your practice? We've seen a large number of cases now
2: coming back uh, after the random breath tests have been conducted. And so it's only going to be a matter of a very short period of time before constitutional challenges are filed to the police power to
0: conduct random breath tests. All right. When you say matter of time, any idea? We're talking days, weeks? Probably about a month. All right. We will check back in uh, with you for sure. Uh, Kyla Lee, thank you so much. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, we were talking about the provincial speculation tax earlier. One of the other news stories making headlines, though, and this was a campaign promise from now Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. During the campaign, he talked about tripling the empty homes tax in Vancouver. He has now filed a motion to have staff at City Hall come up with a plan to review and improve the fairness and effectiveness of the empty homes tax. So let's bring in, to talk about this a little bit more, Tom Davidoff, a professor at the UBC Souter School of Business. Professor, thanks so much for being with us this morning.
3: A real pleasure. Thank you.
0: Uh, What are your thoughts on the idea of tripling the already existing empty homes tax in Vancouver?
3: You know, I think what would happen is you would lose revenue because I don't think anybody would claim an empty home facing a 3% empty homes tax plus anywhere from a half to 2% Uh, from the provincial speculation tax because if you've got an empty house at home in vancouver you're likely to pay the provincial tax as well and i think when you get to already one and a half percent on top of the existing uh i don't know the point three percent or so you start to ask yourself you know if somebody's paying on a million dollar uh the empty homes tax of uh, 10 grand a year. Do we want to give up that 10 grand to get the unit occupied? And it's not obvious that you want to give up that revenue. So if you go too high with the empty homes tax, you're actually going to, uh, you know, you'll get a few units on the market. You're already down to one and a half two 2% uh, declaring the empty status. And so you know, there's a trade-off that you might lose revenue. You get the benefit of more units rented out or sold, but you start to lose significant revenue.
0: Uh, Does it actually do anything to put more units on the market though? Because it seems like if we're talking about the multi-million dollar properties, then there are are the choices of somebody could rent it out. Uh, They're going to be renting it out for a huge amount of money because it's uh, one of those properties or they could sell it or they could pay the tax. Uh, But is it really leading to rentals or opening up rentals that are affordable to people coming onto the market?
3: Well, house rentals uh, certainly serve a use, and uh, there's only so many people that want to rent a house. You know, a lot of families obviously uh, prefer to own, uh, but for those who can't, a house is a great option, and uh, it's great to have uh, good houses on the market to satisfy that market. Obviously, you're talking about absorbing the top of the market there, uh, but by uh, trickle-down, that ought to have some benefit for everybody.
0: It hasn't had a huge impact at this point on on vacancy rates, though. Is that because it's too soon, or do you think it, it will eventually have an impact or, or, or make an increase in the vacancies?
3: Right. Now, we don't know what would have happened to vacancies without uh, these extra units on the market. And what we'll never know, unfortunately, I don't think, is how many people sought to avoid the empty homes tax by renting their place out or selling it to a Time resident, right, which would have reduced vacancy uh, in 2017 or, or maybe 2018 before the tax came into effect. And we just don't know how many people were empty but aren't now because they sold or rented out. At this point, when you're down to about one and a half, you know, one percent of the stock uh, subject to the tax, you know, if you, even if you get some proportion of that re- released over the course of the year, you're not going to have a huge impact on vacancy.
0: And the idea of tripling it, and, and you touched on this in that it could actually lead to a reduced revenue. I, I, I'm not sure where the number of tripling it came. It was a part of Kennedy Stewart's campaign promise. But, but do you know where that, is there a reason for 3% that you know of? I mean, why not make it, uh, make it 10% higher, double it? So why, do you know wh- where that number came from?
3: No, you know, uh, I will say it is very challenging to peg what the right number is. Obviously, there's some people who think the right number is zero. Uh, In my opinion, it is a good idea to ask people who are not part of the workforce here to pay reasonably high property taxes. Uh, But coming up with a number to say, well, no, 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 2.75 is much better than uh, 1.4 or something like that, I think you'd have a very hard time because the economics are rather difficult.
0: Uh, is there a way because one of the other criticisms of this too is this idea of taxing our way to affordability or taxing our way to getting uh, higher vacancy rates Uh, is that possible or does it not come down to supply
3: well i think supply and demand tend to both matter for prices and uh you know, with the speculation tax coming in, uh, it certainly has coincided with the slowing of the market. Vancouver, with its amazing climate, you know, and good governance and low ratios of rent to price and high capital gains historically, is a market that is vulnerable to becoming a playground for the rich if you get tax and zoning policy wrong. So supply certainly matters. Uh, But no matter how much homes you build, there is certainly the risk that a lot of it's going to be absorbed uh, by rich people from all over the world, which is not a terrible thing uh, in some ways. But for the local workforce, uh, it it can be. And so I think demand that says we've got high income and sales taxes, let's shift some of that over to people who buy property, uh, I think certainly has a role to play.
0: Uh, and what about the the room there for people to kind of play the system? Because if you own a property, and what's to say, what's to stop someone from saying, I rent it to my daughter, I rent it to my nephew, and whether they live there or not is their choice. Uh, but what's to stop somebody from saying, yeah, it's rented, uh, that, that's it, it's not empty, uh, off you go?
3: Yeah, my understanding is fake leases had to have been a concern uh, because, you know, the condition isn't, owner-occupier, the condition is it's your primary residence. But I'm not sure what the enforcement is by the city. Obviously, it's something they had to worry about. I, you know, it, it, If you could do a lease for a dollar and keep a place as a vacation place, obviously nobody uh, would pay the empty homes taxes. They'd all do that. So obviously, the city's catching on to that. But I have to say, I'm not quite sure how they're going about that enforcement to make sure it really is somebody's residence.
0: And on the the list of ways to bring in housing affordability or to try and open up rentals, to try and, and have increased vacancy, uh, where do you put taxing as far uh, compared to other incentives?
3: Well, I don't think the government ought to be spending money. <laughs> Obviously, you know, there, you could have it the other way. You could say... Uh, you know, your property taxes are low for everybody. uh, But if you rent your place out, the government gives you money. But of course, that money would have to come from income and sales taxes, which would be, I think, a terrible idea, because then you'd be asking the workforce who don't yet own properties to sacrifice more. So subsidies to rental, uh, I don't think are a great idea. Uh, I do think uh, better zoning is an excellent idea. Again, selling Uh, The right to build apartments is a fantastic way to both get money for affordable housing and, of course, get market rate rentals or condos. And many of the condos, of course, turn into rentals. So there's no question uh, that loosening supply can be both lucrative to the city uh, and to prove affordability.
0: All right. Uh, Tom Davidoff, we will leave it there. But thank you again so much uh, for coming on the program to talk about this.
3: Well, thank you for your time. Have a great weekend.
0: We are talking about mental health, and a two-day interactive conference is coming up. It starts January 31st. This is the first time in B.C. that first responders have really been gathering together and looking at the issue of mental health, some of the challenges, and how to deal with those challenges in those organizations, talking about police officers, firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, and the ongoing trauma and stress that many in those roles deal with with day in and day out. Uh, Joining me on the line is Robert Parkinson. He's a health and wellness director for the Ambulance Paramedics of BC, also a committee member on the Mental Health Committee. Robert, thanks so much for being with us this morning.
4: Well, Thank you for having me, Joe.
0: How important do you think it is to have a conference like this and to really deal with the issue of first responders and mental health?
4: Well, I think it's very important. I think this is one of the the main health uh, injuries that we experience on the job.
0: It seems like in the last couple of years, we have been talking more about this, at least starting those conversations. Have you seen that shift or that change where it is becoming uh, more something that is in the open that people are talking about?
4: Yeah, we're talking about it more. Um, Research is starting to develop and grow in this area, so we're understanding it better. I think we've always sort of known quietly about the, the issue in the background, but the more positive thing that's happening now is the conversation, is that employers that... Uh, workers, uh, the general public is talking about this type of uh, issue in a more broader sense.
0: And when we talk about uh, the stresses and uh, what first responders uh, deal with day in and day out, uh, are there mechanisms in place as far as dealing with uh, what could what could come of that? Uh, whether or not you're 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 dealing with a mental health issue or or it's weighing heavily on you.
4: There are. Um, I think we have a long ways to go, um, and then that's the goal of the conference. I mean, one of the things that we've learned in since 2015 when we started the committee is that uh, the lack of knowledge and understanding by both employers and workers in the first responder community um needs to grow. And, I mean, people want to help. Employers want to help. Leaders want to help, but they don't know how. People may start to understand that they need help, but they don't know where to go. So that's what really what this conference is about. It's about growing the dialogue and the discussion in a positive mental health uh, area.
0: And, and is one of the obstacles, perhaps, that to people who are drawn to these professions uh, are drawn to them for a reason and, and would know that going in, if you're, if you're in any of these roles, that there are going to be very high-stress situations? Is, is one of the reasons, uh, thinking that idea, that perhaps, well, this is the job you knew you were coming into, uh, it, it, it appeals to a certain, a certain group of people, you, you should be able to deal with it? Well, I
4: think that that's that's an inbuilt stigma that we've had uh, a culture that's existed for a long time. I mean, if you talk to anybody that gets into this industry, uh, specifically paramedics or dispatchers, most of them want to say they want to help. I mean, almost every one of the people that I know got in here because we want to help. We understood that there might be some hard times. Um, We like the excitement of of being in an action-packed arena, but I don't think anyone can, can prepare themselves for the the effects and the exposure to trauma that they see on a day-to-day basis. So, I mean, knowing that things are going to happen, but understanding the true nature of that impact, I think, are two different things.
0: And are there mechanisms in place now? Is it up to a first responder to seek out help if he or she needs it? Or are there protocols in place, I guess, that if somebody goes through something like that, whether it's witnessing a horrific crime or an incredibly gory situation, do they automatically get questioned? Are you okay? How are you doing with this? Or is it up to the, the, the first responder to, to seek out that help?
4: Well, that really varies from agency to agency, and that's part of what this committee is about. I mean, uh, some agencies have peer support programs. They have uh, psychological support uh, for treatment and different sort of resources available. Others have nothing, and really we started from an area of little understanding and little resource support, and now we're growing. And I think that that's one of the big things that this Committee has done is created best practices. It's created framework for employers and leaders uh, and workers, and it's given tools to people to seek out help.
0: Yeah, and I would imagine too that because it is still something that 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 isn't perhaps talked about in the open as much as a physical injury is. Is there that, that fear that you might be labelled a certain way or that if you admit to having these issues and maybe even having to take time off, that you, you, you wouldn't be welcomed back? Or it's not like a broken arm heals, you come back to work, uh, that there might still be these questions of whether or not you're actually healed?
4: Well, that's the stigma. And uh, we understood that. Uh, in 2015, when we got together trying to figure out sort of how we solve this, this problem, uh, one of the things we did was research. And we got in there, and we really understood from the various agencies that stigma still exists and is a big barrier. I mean, first responders are about 1% of our population in our workforce, but yet right now they account for 10% of the uh, mental health claims with WorkSafe PC. And that doesn't include the people that, that haven't or are afraid to seek help. So, I mean, we understand that the uh, the numbers are very high, So how do we reach out to them and how do we get to them? That's the first thing we want to do is break down that stigma. I mean, first responders don't want special treatment. In fact, the idea of showing weakness is is exactly what you said. I mean, it might open themselves up. And I think that that's the very dialogue we need to talk about and, and to get over so that we can help people before these injuries become too big.
0: And have you noticed a difference in uh, dealing with the opioid crisis? And I know we've talked to some first responders who, uh, I mean, will spend an entire shift helping people who have overdosed, sometimes uh, the same person over and over. I mean, that has got to be very trying on somebody that that, that as that's become more and more of a crisis. Have you noticed a difference in or, or the role that that is playing?
4: Well, it, it obviously pays, plays an impact. I mean, the we used to, work the downtown core, maybe see one or two overdoses in a four-day block. And uh, now people are seeing 10 or so uh, shift. And sometimes they're seeing the same person over and over again. And I mean, when you're dealing with somebody in a life and death situation, I mean, that wears. That That's, that, there's no doubt that that has an effect. And then we run into the issue of compassion fatigue. And now that you're dealing with this over and over again, how do you deal with it? And then how do you take that home and, and, and sort of process it and get beyond it to get back to where you need to be. So, yeah, the, the, the exposure rates that we're seeing with the, uh, the opioid issues uh, uh, that are becoming not so much a crisis anymore, but an everyday reality, I mean, we're having to figure out ways to cope. And I think that that's why this conference is so good, because we have speakers, we have people talking about those things, and we're giving tools to the first responder community.
0: Interesting when you say compassion fatigue, uh, because I think even people watching this from the outside will look at that. And uh, even though we know that addiction is a disease and uh, there's so much more to it, uh, the, the idea of, like you said, helping the same person time over and over again, even in one day, as much as you want to be compassionate and help this person, you must, I mean, it would be, it's human nature. You want to show anger or, or you, you would feel a certain way of uh, the frustration, anger, or what have you.
4: Well, I I think it wears on yourself. It's more about you and how how you're dealing with it because you care. So you care so much that after a while, how do you protect yourself? And that's where the wearing starts to happen. And that can come out in various ways. So that's why, you know, the, the importance of this conference in the moment we're in right now is huge. I mean, we need to get the information out. We need to bring people together to increase the dialogue and education. And that's what this first of its kind Conference is doing. It's bringing these these uh, first responder communities together to have a voice in creating change.
0: All right. Well, we will leave it there. But uh, it's coming up uh, starting on the thirty first. Uh, I know a lot of people will be attending. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Robert, and for uh, bringing us up to date on what's happening and what's going to be happening. I appreciate it.
4: Well, thank you for sharing the discussion, Joe.
0: Well, who doesn't have a bit of stress from time to time? Fatigue, sure, we can all relate to that. So we're going to talk a little bit about our wellness. And my next guest is actually going to be talking at the upcoming wellness show. It's happening February 2nd and 3rd in Vancouver. Uh, Erin Ashley is on the line with me right now. Erin, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, you're a fitness coach. You have authored a couple of books out there. You're going to be talking, though, about uh, the effects that stress and adrenal fatigue can have on people. How much How much does that, do you think, affect our daily lives?
5: Oh, I think it's huge. I think especially this day and age, I think most people don't realize how much or how stressed we are. I think we're all kind of just going so fast. <laughs> a lot of times it doesn't really occur to us until something happens, like we get ill or, you know, some sort of something along that lines happens. We kind of have a little bit of a breakdown. So I think that it's really important that we are mindful of what we're doing and that we are, you know, practicing restful techniques, whether it be meditation or tapping. Um, and then supporting ourselves, of course, with good, healthy foods. And then, of course, some adaptogens as well, if you need be. So I think it's really important.
0: And when we talk about stress, it's such a, an all-encompassing word because I think everybody has some stress in their life, and that's okay to have a bit. That we feel it. I suppose it's how we deal with it that really comes into play. Uh, what do you say to people, or is there a certain amount of stress that you, that you would say is okay? Well, I guess
5: like a, I mean a little bit of stress is good. I mean that kind of keeps us going. I mean if you if you use it for, I mean I use stress a little bit of stress to motivate me to achieve my goals and kind of keep pushing forward. But I think if you um, have too many things kind of on your plate, it's really important to compartmentalize. That's one of the things I have to do sometimes because I do, you know, I'm a single mom and I've got a lot of stuff on the go. And sometimes it can be really overwhelming when you look at your whole list of things you need to do. So sometimes what I do is at the beginning of each week, I'll write down, you know, my goals for the week and what I need to accomplish. And then I compartmentalize and put it into time blocks. So it's a great way to kind of section it off. I mean, you can kind of go through it one by one instead of just looking at this gigantic array of things you need to work through. It kind of is a lot easier to get through.
0: Although I, I think that sounds great; it sounds very organized. But I, I would think that if you then if you have it all laid out, and if you're not meeting your goals, that could almost be another source of stress. That is true. That probably could be another good point. <laughs> that could be another
5: well, then at that point, then maybe take some things off the list. Maybe some, look at some things that maybe aren't as Priority or that aren't number one. I mean, there's obviously certain things that will be number one, as it, you know, caring for your children and, you know, going to work, those things would be number one. So maybe taking some of the other things off that um, right now maybe aren't as imperative to get through and then put those on the back burner. Put them kind of in the other list for a bit, you know, the get to later list and then kind of get to the most important things. And, I-, I mean, I think really important, sorry, but I think it's really important too is to also give yourself a little bit of a break. You know, I think a lot of the time we, we hold ourselves at these high regards or we have this, this thing we think we need to achieve. And I think by just kind of sometimes recognizing we're all human and sometimes we're not going to get everything done and that's okay, too. I think that's
0: really important. And one of the things, uh, Maureen McGrath, who hosts the health show here on Sunday nights, uh, she and I have talked on this program. And I think not to not to paint women with one brush, but I think women fall into this a bit more. Is that uh, being people pleasers and always saying yes to things, and the importance of saying no. I, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. I don't have time to do that. And making sure uh, people value their own time and, like you said, have time to, to stop and not constantly be pulled in a million directions.
5: I 100% agree. Boundaries. That's another thing, too, is really kind of learning to create boundaries. And I I agree with you. I think most women... We, we do everything. We really do. And even if, you know, the same age, I'm not turning down the men either. I mean, the men have, are much more stepping up to the plate in the household duties and whatnot. But, I mean, studies have shown that women still tend to kind of carry the, they still, t- 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 for the most part, tend to do a lot more.
0: <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, you also talk about uh, adrenal fatigue. How is that different from uh, run-of-the-mill, didn't-get-enough-sleep fatigue?
5: Well, I mean, there is, I mean, this. I think they kind of both intertwine. They can both easily intertwine because if you're not getting enough sleep, then you're obviously going to tax your adrenals as well, right? So, but with um, the product that I've kind of launched, it was due to the some of my issues that I had. You know, I had a lot of struggles with losing weight. Um, my, I was craving things constantly. I was constantly exhausted. And so when I began to work with the formula that I worked with, we really looked at what my adrenals were doing. And so I think with adrenal fatigue, you have to, I mean, you have to do, be mindful, do mindful practices, eat healthy foods, move your body that kind of like take care of yourself in that way. But if you are noticing that you are, you know, you're just not, you're following a healthy eating plan, but your body's just not letting go of weight. If you find, you know, you're waking up at insomnia you're not sleeping well through the night, if three o'clock in the afternoon you have that severe energy dip and you just can't seem to get out of it, there's some different symptoms as well that you can, that will kind of guide you towards that. Now, adrenal fatigue is not medically recognized, but there still is a lot of adaptogens that are in the products that I made that will help you help you kind of support your adrenals.
0: And so, it, is, it is one of those those things that uh, that there are different schools of thought on that. I, mean, I met a woman once, so she'd given up caffeine because she felt mm-hmm. that that was just depleting her adrenals and that she yeah. felt much better not drinking caffeine. But it does seem like a personal choice and kind of knowing your own body. I think 100%. I think that's something
5: I talk about. Um, I do a lot of talks. And I think the one thing is we all tend to be a little bit disconnected from ourselves. You know, I think it's important to take a journal, not only writing down, you know, don't write down calories and stuff, but write down how you're feeling. You know, how is your body feeling in this moment? How have you felt when you ate a certain food? What's your energy like today opposed to yesterday? And what were you eating? Because our food is the main thing. I mean, if I I talk about anything, I want people to eat whole healthy foods, you know, try to get a good night's sleep. And if you do need extra support, then take the extra support as well. But everything comes down to what we're eating. So if we're not putting healthy, nutritious food into our body, we're not going to be able to expect – you know, a healthy body, really. So I think that's really, really important. But writing down what you're feeling, because then you can kind of trace it back a little bit to what you're eating. Be like, okay, you know, this day I I ate this, you know, food that wasn't really that great for my body. It didn't nourish me. And then surprisingly, I didn't feel that good. I had an energy crash. My body wasn't responding the way I wanted it to, right? So I think it's important to really kind of tap into how you're feeling and we're all individuals. So nobody is like anybody else.
0: Uh, It sounds like you might be a fan of the new uh, Canada Food Guide. I do. I
5: saw that. I'm a big fan of it. I think that's fantastic. I think it's really fantastic. I think, I think the big thing is really, um, you know, some people, I tend to operate a little bit better off a higher fat, higher protein, a little bit lower carb diet, but I feel better. It's not because it's not a diet. It's how I feel. I think it's so important to try different things to understand how your body feels with it and what makes you feel best and what makes your body optimum at the highest level.
0: Uh, and I know you're talking about uh, about stress and about fatigue and fitness in that sense at the upcoming conference. But you have yes. uh, written extensively about uh, eating disorders, about your struggle with that. Yes. How has that helped you as far as getting to the point where you are today?
5: Oh, it's been it's been quite a journey. I mean, the book, um, Believe Me to Balance, that I wrote took me a couple of years. <laughs> that was stressful. You don't talk about stressful. <laughs> <laughs> My hat is off to anybody who writes a book because, holy smokes, that's a lot of work. But um, it really gave me an understanding of the, the want to numb. Like, food for me was always a numbing mechanism. It wasn't necessarily for nourishment. And so learning to stand in a place where I'm very mindful and connected to what I'm eating, why I'm eating. Um, you know, am I mad, sad, lonely, those kind of things. And I think that's really... Um, prepared me to also help others. That's kind of really what my intention is, is to serve others and help them understand a little bit more about their bodies and how their bodies can give them, of course, the best results. But in that, looking at why we're eating the certain foods that we're eating. I think that is a really big, important part of it.
0: I think you're right. And we can fall into that trap of eating foods that are easy. They might not be the healthiest and uh, and not realize the, the connection between how we're feeling and what we're eating. Uh, for you, though, what was it? What what was it that made you change and realize that the path you were on and, and struggling with an eating disorder just wasn't working?
5: Well, I kind of had my aha moment, I guess, as the wonderful Miss Oprah Winfrey coins. <laughs> you can tell <laughs> I'm a fan. Um, I was, my daughter was about three years old. And uh, I was a single parent, and I still was really struggling. I've been struggling for about 20 years with um, bulimia, and I, you know, every, it was every Monday, every Sunday, every holiday, I was going to get under control, kind of the typical dieter. And that's why the book is not just necessarily for people who struggle with eating disorders, but it really emulates the fact we all struggle with something. We all try to do something to numb out, and food had always been my numbing. And I went up to the bathroom and I'd had an episode and I'd eaten too much and binged and I was going to go purge. And I was in the middle of my purge and, you know, it's very methodical. It's a pattern. Everything's patterned. So, you know, hair back in the bun, dropped to my knees. And I started putting my fingers down my throat. And there was a knock at the door and it was my three year old. And she was like, Mommy, what are you doing? Because she'd never been locked out. You know, mm-hmm. and when you have kids, we all of a sudden give up our privacy rights. Right? Like they walk in whenever they want. And when I rose up and I caught my reflection in the mirror, You know, I've seen that before, and all of a sudden it became very, very clear to me that if I didn't get a grip on this in this exact moment and start changing what I was doing and my patterns and my habits, that this could be her. And I was not willing to let her have that because, you know, I I talk a lot about kids, too, but we don't realize how much they watch us. Even with little things, whether we're analyzing our bodies in the mirror or certain foods we won't eat and we say, it you know, well, I can't have that. They watch us so much, and I just knew at that point if I didn't get a hold of it that that could be her, and I was not willing let so my daughter go through the the lifelong struggle I had had with food, and that 's when I really embarked on you know taking more courses and looking caught into behavioral therapy and my mom 's a guidance counselor and really started relying on um, strategies and tools and friends and being really open about what I was going through and I started really working through what um, what my disorder was and why I was choosing certain habits and patterns and changing them right so that's kind of what ended up, that was the kind of catalyst moment for me with her so that 's been a journey ever since but it's interesting to think, you know, now I'm in such a different place, and I know a lot of people think you can't work out of that something or you can't not um, have an issue with food if you've had one previously because, you know, food, unlike alcohol and drugs, we can't not drink or partake in drugs. We have to eat. <laughs> you know, I mean, we can. Sorry, we can not partake, <laughs> which we need to eat, right? So it's something that we have to kind of figure it out. And so um, the ability to work through that, and, you know, it's, I, it's amazing to see where I am now. And it's, it's such a freeing feeling. So it really is possible. So anybody out there who is struggling with it, I'm, I'm definitely here to tell you it is possible to work through it and get through it. So,
0: All right. Absolutely. yeah. Uh, where can people <laughs> find you uh, at the wellness show? Or when can people come and check out uh, what you're talking about there?
5: Okay, I am on. I'm, I'm on Saturday at 445, and I'm on Sunday at 1 o'clock. I have a booth. It's the Aaron Wellness booth. We're going to have the product there and the books there. It's booth 205. So I will be there all weekend with Bellzone. <laughs> and my daughter's there too. I've got her working the whole weekend with me, so it's going to be a fun weekend.
0: All right, uh, sounds great. Well, Erin, thanks for taking uh, some time uh, with us today. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really
5: appreciate it as well.